Thanks, Don. Good morning, church. It's great to see you again. Uh, Pastor Rick, I know you're not here, but thank you. Appreciate it. I know you're going to be watching in and uh, grading me, so I look forward to that report card. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are going to be in the book of Habakkuk today. Habakkuk. If you don't have your Bible or device, uh, please raise your hand and one of the gentlemen will give you a Bible to borrow. And I'm going to talk a little longer uh, so you all can find Habakkuk. Not only does he have a unique name, some people say Habakkuk, some people say Habakkuk. Uh, Neither of those are Jewish, so they're anglicized. But uh, Habakkuk was a minor prophet, and minor in the sense that he just wrote a small book. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that he was second-class prophet. But if you go to Psalms and turn right and uh, keep flipping, you'll eventually run into Habakkuk. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far, go back left. All right? So this week and next week, we're going to be talking about this small book. And the the focus of this book is trusting God when life just doesn't make sense. Trusting God when life doesn't make sense. Today, we're going to look at the first chapter and then just kind of creep into chapter two. So if you're there, please please join me in standing in honor of God and his word. We're going to begin in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm going to read the entire chapter. And as I read this, this is a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. So this is a a divinely inspired conversation between the two. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Listen to God's response. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I'm doing something in your days, you wouldn't believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an evil eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and they heap rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Habakkuk's reply. 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they, therefore, empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he, God, will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot of truth in your word for us this morning. And I pray in the midst of the different pressures and conflicting thoughts and emotions we each bring to church with us this morning. May we humble ourselves before you, quiet ourselves before you, and wait before you to hear your voice. Open our eyes, open our ears, that we may see and hear you and your truth for us, for this day, for this place, for such a time as this. God, thank you for being with us. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you freely and directly through Jesus Christ. And like Habakkuk, Lord, help us to trust you, even when life doesn't make sense. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Before you sit down, let's take a moment, greet those around you, please. Look for someone you don't know. Well, my family and I have lived on this beautiful island for just over three years. I just moved to a new billet, so we've got two more years ahead of us. Five years in one place. That's unheard of for the Johnson family. In my, in my military career, when we PCS in the States, you know, when we move from one location to another, for those of you who are not in the military, we have orders. My family typically loads up in, in, in a caravan now. And so we'll throw all of our stuff, you know, it's kind of like Tetris. You got to figure out how to put everything, where it goes and cram everything in there and close the hatch of the minivan. But we got to get the kids in there. We've got to get all of our luggage. We've got to get all of our snacks and, and all those things. And then, you know, we had a, a big German shepherd dog, Louie, right? He had to get in there somehow. And it was just crazy. But it was fun, right? And if you're like me, you have a well laid out plan for how you're going to accomplish that day's journey. You have, you have checkpoints, you have waypoints. All right, I'm going to hit this waypoint, this waypoint, this waypoint before I get to my final destination. For us, those waypoints typically include clean restrooms, good coffee, 
and most importantly, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> right? It's been called the Lord's chicken for a reason. But uh, that's, that's the Johnson. Uh, that's the Johnson way of setting waypoints. And so in the beginning of the day, you know, I get all set up in my vehicle. I program in the destination on my phone, put it up on my dash and hit go. And then I proceed to look at the time when I'm supposed to get there and I try to beat it. <laughs> Anyone else like that? Yeah. Right. Yet, how do I get from point A to point B? I mean, I, I follow what they tell me, but the point is, is that I have followed what someone else has done before me. They have mapped out the course before me, and I simply am following what they've told me. You know, in the, in the old days, we had the old Rand McNally map. You'd pull that out and it'd be this big thing and you'd have to map it out and figure out, okay, uh, this is where I'm going. And, you know, it was a lot more complicated back then. And then uh, those of you who are perhaps a little more seasoned, you might remember the great transition to MapQuest. You'd get on your gateway computer with dial up and then uh, you'd get MapQuest and then you'd print it out. And then hopefully you weren't out of ink and the lines were there and you would take that with you in your car. Um, and now it's just easy, right? We just plug in the address and go. And yet, regardless of the medium, someone had to get us from point A to point B. And that's essentially what the saints like Habakkuk have done for us in the Old Testament. They have gone before us. They have pointed us to the direction, our final destination. And so they have pointed us to Christ. They have given us divinely inspired directions for life. They have pointed us to him who by his finished work on the cross has enabled us to be adopted into God's family despite our sin, our shame, and our guilt. This God-given roadmap for life shows us that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. That our ultimate destination doesn't reside here on this physical earth, but in the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus is preparing for us. And yet, based on what Jesus told us in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, that road that leads to everlasting life is difficult. The entrance is narrow. And yet the road that leads to destruction is broad and its gate is wide. And so if you follow Jesus as your savior and your master for any time at all, you know the truth of that. It's hard to follow Jesus. It's been said that you're either going in a trial, you're in the middle of one, or you just came out of a trial. And that certainly resonates with me. As a church family, we've experienced an incredible amount of difficult things most recently. We've had multiple deaths, sicknesses, marital struggles, tough PCSs, on and on and on I could go. We also face an uncertain world 
with questions that loom about safety and world order that uh, we, in our limited perspective, have no understanding of what is ultimately going to happen, except that Christ said we would have tribulation. But to take heart, he has overcome the world. And so Habakkuk finds himself in a similar uncertain circumstance where his feeble nation of Judah is about to get overrun and annihilated by a Babylonian horde. He's experiencing some trying times and life just doesn't make sense. And so today and next Sunday, we're going to take a closer look at this inspired question and answer session that God holds with one of his trusted prophets with the goal that it's going to provide us with further directions to our ultimate destination. As you and I go through the road of life, go down the highway of life together. In the fourth century BC, the Greek philosopher Epicurus provided what some believe is the definitive argument against belief in God. Epicurus's argument focuses on the problem of evil. And this is known as theodicy and how it challenges the classic concept of God as embraced by us as Christians. And his argument goes like this. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not willing? Then he is malevolent, the creator of evil. Is he both able to prevent evil and willing to stop it? Then where does evil come from? And finally, is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And if we're honest with ourselves, most of us have asked these questions at some point in our lives where what we think we know about God and what we think we know about his truth doesn't match with what we are experiencing. God, how long will you tolerate evil in this world? God, things seem to get worse every day. God, why is my marriage in shambles? God, why is my child running up away from you? God, why? If you love me so much, why is my life so hard? Why? 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 Believing he had the answer to the question of why, Harold Kushner wrote in 1981 his bestseller called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The reason? His teenage son died due to an incurable genetic disease. In the book, he revisits Epicurus's argument. If the universe was created and also governed by a God who is good and loving, why is there so much suffering and pain within it? Kushner came to the conclusion that while God does his best and is with people in their suffering, he's not fully able to prevent it. Well, I think his goal was a noble one. And that he did want to offer comfort to grieving people. His answer contra contradicts the clear teaching of scripture. 
And so what for us matters is what does scripture say? Well, long before Kushner and even Epicurus Habakkuk, along with Moses, Job, and many other prophets address the problem of evil. And like us, Habakkuk was a flesh and blood person who wrestled with his thoughts and emotions due to the difficulties he was facing. So to better understand the context of this little book, we need to know the specific problems he confronted. Now, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, I encourage you, put your finger in Habakkuk and flip over, look to the, look to the map section, because I want to provide us for the next couple minutes, an orientation of what life was like for Habakkuk. And if you're a, if you're a visual person, that, that map will help you. Again, Habakkuk was a flesh and blood man who underwent hard things. These aren't just made up stories in the Bible. These are real life events that happen to real people. We need to learn from them. So if you have a look back at those maps of the Old Testament, here's the context of of this little book. Big picture. During the thousand years before Jesus was born, the balance of power typically shifted between Egypt and then Assyria and Babylon and then the Medes and Persians. Israel and Judah found themselves stuck in between those powerful nation states. And they were right in the middle of those power struggles as armies would come and go. And these uh, leaders would assert themselves. And it wasn't except for the glory years of Saul, David and Solomon that truly Israel and Judah could fend for themselves. And yet time and again, God made it clear that Israel and Judah's weakness was a result of their disobedience, but they didn't listen. They didn't obey. And so as a result, Habakkuk lived in a time of tremendous change, time of tremendous turbulence in the ancient Near East as Babylon, also known as the Chaldeans, as they came seemingly out of nowhere and they took power from the vicious Assyrians. Now, as Assyria declined, Judas King Josiah exerted independence and he implemented major religious and political reforms that challenged Assyria's authority. And yet as Assyria's power was being grabbed by Babylon, Egypt didn't like that power imbalance. And so in 609 BC, the Pharaoh Necho II went to Assyria's aid at the, at the battle of Carchemish. And so this placed Josiah in a difficult position because he was surrounded by Egypt and Assyria. And he was posing a threat because of his reforms. And so what did he do? He went out to meet the Egyptians in battle at the battle of Megiddo. And he died as a result. And we read about that in second Kings 23, 29. So what did the people do? They selected Josiah's younger son, Jehoahaz, as king rather than Josiah's oldest son, Eliakim, because they thought Jehoahaz 
would continue the struggle for independence and that Eliakim would just give in to the Egyptians. Well, that's exactly what happened. Jehoahaz resisted. And so a Pharaoh came in, imprisoned Jehoahaz and took him to Egypt just after three months on the throne. And he ended up living there until his death. And then he installed Eliakim as a puppet king. The problem with this from Habakkuk's perspective was that Eliakim was a dictator. He shed a lot of innocent blood. This is in second Kings 24. Jeremiah described him as unjust and brutal. Eliakim was so callous against the Lord that when the Lord inspired Jeremiah to give him a warning, as that warning was read to him, he carved it up into pieces and threw it into the fire. In fact, he was the only king of Judah to put a prophet of the Lord to death. And so for a few years after that battle of Megiddo, where Josiah died, Pharaoh Necho main control over Syria and Palestine to include Judah. But, but a few years later, Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon gave his son Nebuchadnezzar control of the army who then conquered the Egyptian army. And so Eliakim now sees the, the balance of power shifting. And then he says, okay, Babylon, I'm going to, I trust, I, I trust you now. I'm going to go with you. And uh, a few years later, um, he died and, and Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians. And so through this seesawing balance of power back and forth, Judah and the people we're going back and forth. It was a time of great instability, a lot of turbulence. They were disillusioned. There was a lot of internal bloodshed. There was a lot of social discontent and overwhelming moral decline. Ultimately, the people said, God, we reject you. We reject what Moses taught us in the covenant. You are not our God. You are not powerful enough to save us. And so they turn to themselves and they turn to false gods. And like Kushner, they thought God was powerless to save them. And so in the midst of this turbulence, we find Habakkuk. The Lord sent him along with Jeremiah, Nahum, Obadiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel to proclaim his message to this callous people. And he sent his prophets to suffer with his people. Yet instead of speaking to the people for God, like the other prophets, Habakkuk spoke to God for the people. And again, here's the big picture of the book. Habakkuk teaches us that questioning God in and of itself isn't necessarily wrong, but Refusing to trust God certainly is. Refusing to trust God is sin. The book shows us that when we are real with God, when we are transparent about what we are thinking and feeling, and yet we trust him enough to quiet ourselves before him and wait on him in faith. Even when life doesn't make sense. You know what he's going to do? He's going to reveal himself to us in great 
in mysterious and deep ways that will transform us. We will leave that encounter with God transformed because we have experienced the great God of all creation. And what's going to happen as the end result, we are going to testify to God's grace and power to a watching world who is facing adversity, not in our own strength, but by his strength and his grace. So with that background in mind, let's now look at the text. I'm not going to go verse by verse. There's, there's a lot there, but I'm going to capture the themes. So looking at verse one, we see that Habakkuk is given an oracle or a burden from the Lord. It was a heavy subject. Habakkuk was shown the future suffering of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. And so during these first two chapters of the small book, we see this question and answer as Habakkuk offers questions. God replies, Habakkuk continues answers, ask questions and God replies for the ultimate result in there in chapter three, where Habakkuk offers a submissive response and prayer of trust. That's next week. So there in verses two to four, we see this first series of questions that Habakkuk offers God. He's pleading with the Lord and here's his problem. His experience doesn't align with his theology. Been there? I have. What God says about himself doesn't line up with what Habakkuk is seeing. And as Pastor Rick mentioned last week, there's a temptation to allow experience to override what God has revealed about himself in scripture. That's a temptation that we all face. And Habakkuk was no different. In verse two, how long, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. God doesn't seem to be answering Habakkuk's prayers time. And again, he had poured out his soul in anguish to the Lord, but to no avail. God, are you there? God seemed distant, detached and silent. Habakkuk is crying for relief from the political injustices and the, the pain and suffering of the people. And yet God had not answered. However, Habakkuk's uh, situation is a direct fulfillment of what the Lord had warned some 500 years ago through the prophet Samuel in first Samuel eight eighteen, This is what the Lord said as a warning. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king. Remember evil Eliakim, whom you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And here's our first important point. The Lord keeps his word. The Lord keeps his word, whether that's a promise of blessing or a warning of judgment. God always keeps his word. He's told us that we reap what we sow. Yet 
If we're transparent with ourselves, we're like Habakkuk in the midst of our suffering and distress. We tend to have selective memory. We tend to fail God's warnings. So for our own spiritual health, it's important then that we remember and meditate on all of God's words, not just the quote unquote good, encouraging passages of scripture, but also God's dire warnings. And yet, yes, while he is a loving father, he is also holy and just. And so while our sins might be washed away by the blood of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, God does not necessarily remove all of the negative consequences of our sinful behavior. And that's because of his wisdom and his grace. If you're a parent, perhaps you've experienced what I've experienced. You know, you warn your kid, don't touch the hot stove. You do that because you love your kids. And if your kids are like what I was growing up, you still touch the stove, right? And you, you pay the consequence of that. That's kind of like what it is with us and our sin. Don't touch that sin, but God, it looks so good. I want to see what it feels like. I want to experience it. And we touch it and we get burned. God's there to comfort us like a loving parent does, but he doesn't remove the consequences necessarily of that sinful behavior. Habakkuk goes on in verse three. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? And again, like us, Habakkuk is crying out. Why, why, why? Because his life didn't make sense. In verse four, he talks about how he had a front row seat to all this destruction and violence, this blatant disregard for God's established laws. There was widespread injustice. The righteous were taunted and persecuted. There was no relief from the suffering that they were under. And God just didn't seem to care because evil was not being restrained. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like the world around us is spiraling out of control? And you're asking, God, where are you in all this? Keep it in check. How then will the God of the universe respond to this challenge from his prophet? Well, the answer for us is found in verses 5 to 11. First, Let's read verses five and six. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. First, I want us to know that the Lord does respond. And that's our second main point. The Lord always answers prayer, just perhaps not in the way we expect him to or want him to. He does always answer prayer and he does respond to Habakkuk. Yet God's response is shocking because he's rocking Habakkuk's whole paradigm of what justice is, of what fairness and right versus wrong looks like. 
he's sharing with Habakkuk that Babylon would rapidly rise to power and that yes, he would for a time seemingly reject his people. And yes, that suffering, that persecution would take place at the hand of people that were even more wicked than themselves. Isaiah under inspiration of, of the Holy spirit. He says this in chapter 55 verses eight and nine for my thoughts. This is God speaking to Isaiah. God is saying for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways. My ways declares the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my thoughts. So are, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And in the classic book of the Bible on suffering and the question of why Job does question God in chapter three, verses 11 and 20, he's asking God, why, why? And then we see for the most part of that book, Job's friends trying to answer and provide a reason for Job's suffering. Ultimately, we see the Lord stepping in and providing a direct answer to Job. And you know what, what God says in a nutshell, this is, this is the RDJ Rob Johnson version. God says, I am the creator. I am the sustainer of all things. Who are you to question me? God says, I am faithful. I will provide justice and my justice transcends your limited human understanding. Now, what I'm about to share is a horrible comparison because it doesn't adequately communicate the gulf between our limited understanding and God's perfect understanding. But here's my feeble attempt at trying to demonstrate that. When we, when we have a newborn, we don't expect a newborn to not only talk, but we don't expect a newborn to understand the complexities of quantum mechanics. It's above their understanding. It's too, it's too great for them to know. And in some regards, in a greater, much greater way, that gulf between creator and created thing is such that God sits above and beyond his creation. And he knows why he does what he does. And he offers us his reasoning for why he does what he does. But he is God and we are not. And so what can we do? Well, if there are things that we just cannot grasp, what we can grasp is that God, the creator humbled himself and communicated himself to us in such a way that not only did he give us prophets to tell us how to be right with him, how to live for him, but he sent his one and only son, the just for the unjust that we could be made right with God. And so that's our answer. We, we don't know all the complexities, but we do know that God loves us and he loves us so much. He sent his one and only son to die for us. 
and rise again from the dead that we could have a restored relationship with our father, be adopted into his family. That's what we do know. Next here in Habakkuk, we see that God responds to Habakkuk in the plural. Habakkuk prays to God on his own behalf in verse two. I cry out. But in verse five, God answers Habakkuk in the plural. He says, you, as in you all. And here's an important point. God wants Habakkuk to share and record what he was communicating. He wanted his response to serve as an encouragement and a warning to all who should listen. And even though we aren't perfectly inspired like Habakkuk to write things down, we do have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And we can go and share what he has done for us to the people around us. What we have heard from God and communicate that to those around us. I also want you to note that God doesn't rebuke Habakkuk. He doesn't also dispute what Habakkuk said. Let that sink in for a moment. Habakkuk was, was saying some pretty tough things to God. God didn't refute it. Evil was coming. But we do know that the Lord fully sympathizes with his prophet over the suffering that he was going to encounter and the suffering of the faithful remnant. And later on in the book, we're going to see how he goes to show Habakkuk that he not only sees and grasps the problem more fully than his prophet does, but that he's intentionally orchestrating these events for his sovereign purposes. And that's the third main point. The Lord is sovereign and he's always at work. He's control over all things and will always be in control of all things. And he's always at work for us. We may not sense it. We may not understand it, but he is always at work. Whether that's from the broadest expanse of the universe in the movement of the stars, the earth's rotation around the sun down to the subatomic level of the building blocks of matter and everything in between to include the rise and fall of nations and the billions and billions of interpersonal relationships that we are encountering today. God is always at work. He sees the end of something before the very start of its beginning because he's above time and he possesses all knowledge. You know, when I was a teenager, I uh, received Christ my savior when I was 10 years old and a teenager in a great youth group. I had an awesome youth pastor. And as he was discipling me, he sensed uh, some fear in my life that he saw as a stumbling block to further spiritual growth. And so after teaching me how to repel down a perfectly good cliff. Um, he took me spelunking cave exploring 
Now I grew up, I grew up in Colorado and there's a cave system under the Rocky mountains. And this one cave that we entered had uh, caverns that went in for, for at least a couple miles. It's some parts of, of that spelunking adventure. You know, we had to take off our backpacks and shimmy to get through and pull our backpack behind us. At other points, we looked up and there was a vast expanse, probably two or 300 feet high. It was incredible. I remember a point where I had to shimmy like this to go up, you know, about 25 feet and there was nothing. So it was uh, pretty daunting for me, but my youth pastor gave me a map. He gave me a light. He gave me equipment. And then he brought me along with himself. I had to place my complete trust in him. He gave me the tools, but I had to follow his lead. Now, towards the end, we got to this one point where I had my light on and I looked down. I couldn't see the bottom. And he's like, hey, Rob, we're going that way. And then he pulls out the rope. And we're going to go repelling. Talk about scared. So I, I get in, the, get in the, the, the harness and, I, and I'm, I'm roped up and, and I'm going down. I'm checking my carabiner, making sure, you know, all my form is good and all that stuff. My heart was beating through my chest and I, I go out in faith. Not in my own works, but I trusted my youth pastor. And I trusted what he had given me, what he had told me to do. And this was the only way out in that dark cave. And so I mustered up what little courage I could and took the plunge. Plunging into the darkness as I'd gaze and ultimately I hit the, hit the ground. God used that as a very powerful lesson in my life. You might be going through that kind of darkness right now where it feels like, God, I'm about to fall off this major cliff. I don't see the bottom. It's an abyss. God, I'm scared. You've told me what I can do. You've given me the tools I need to do your will. You've promised that you're here with me, but I'm scared. And I want to trust you, but I don't. You know, in, in that moment of decision, as you're wrestling with that darkness in your life, whether that's a shattered dream, whether that's a broken promise, whether that's uh, physical suffering, whether that's injustice, whatever that dark thing is, whatever that evil is, trust God. He's given you the tools. He's there with you. He's given you those who are with you in that process. Take the plunge and trust him. Go out in faith. Because he's in control. He sees all and knows all. Like my youth pastor, my youth pastor knew exactly before we got to the cave what he was going to put me through. I didn't know that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone with him. Right? <laughs> That's like us in life. God knows exactly what he's going to put us through before we even do it. 
trust him. He sees all. He knows all. He's with us. He's given us the tools. He is in control. Because he is always at work. He's always at work in your life, in my life. For his glory and our ultimate good, whether we see it or feel it. But the problem is, is this knowledge may produce further anxiety and consternation in us. The fact that perhaps we have a glimmer into what we are about to go through. That might cause us a little anxiety. And that leads me to our fourth main point this morning. The Lord brings crises into our life to strengthen our faith. Habakkuk didn't have a weak faith. He just had a perplexed one. And that compelled him to bring up a second uh, second set of questions to God. And that second set of questions are found in verses 12 to 20, excuse me, verses 12 down to 17. And then he concludes in chapter two, verse one. And so in summary, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize what we see in these verses. In these set of questions, he's not asking out of a lack of faith, but he's bringing up God's own revelation to God himself. He's trusting God even when life doesn't make sense. In verse 12, he says, God is from everlasting. He's reminding God of his own nature. If God's choice to make Israel his special people originated in eternity past, surely how could God now threaten his people's destruction? And so what does Habakkuk say at the end of verse 12? We shall surely not die. Or excuse me, that's in... uh, I lost it. We shall not surely die. That's, uh, that's in that passage. I'm going to have to look at it's uh, yeah. Verse 12. There you go. He goes on in verse 12. He says, Oh Lord, right? That's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. In essence, God, you revealed your nature to us in a special chosen way. Surely you can't reject us now. Verse 12, he calls God a rock. We sing about that this morning. God is our rock. And he's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Again, he's saying, Habakkuk is saying, God, I'm taking you at your word. Even if my understanding of what I'm seeing doesn't line up with my, my experience. And then there in verses 12 and 13, he goes on, my holy one, you who are of pure eyes to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He knows God cannot tolerate or condone evil. And so he's confused. And so given all of this, he's reciting to God what he's revealed about himself there in verses 13 and seven through 17. Habakkuk then goes back to his main problem. God, how can you stay morally upright and allow the, the evil Babylonians to punish us? I thought we were your chosen people. God, aren't you violating your very principles that you told us to follow? How can this be? So in this perplexed, perplexed faith, Habakkuk concludes, God is ultimately behind the mistreatment of the Israelites. And so even amidst all of the horrific wrongdoing laid out in verses 15 and 16, he's going to trust God. You know, in verses 15 and 16, the Babylonians, uh, historically, they drove hooks 
through their captives, lower lips. And they led them single file as they pulled them along. They applied torture as part of their religious worship. And then they took sensual pleasure at their victims shame. The Babylonians were not good people. They were the worst of the worst. And yet we see God essentially saying to Habakkuk, uh, he wants to use those people to speak truth to Judah. God, why? Why? And that brings us to chapter two, verse one. Habakkuk is on the lookout. He's bracing himself, you know, to, to receive a strong rebuke from God for his direct questioning. He's not attempting to reconcile the apparent contradiction. He's going to wait on the Lord. He is trusting God when life doesn't make sense. And so that's where we're going to pause this morning in that tension. Because life's like that, isn't it? We have to wait on the Lord many times before there's an answer. And there's tension. And it's hard. Because what we know to be true about God and what we experience in the world around us just don't seem to align. And so what do we do? Like Habakkuk, we need to wait on the Lord. The good news is God doesn't leave us here. It's not the end of the story. There is chapter three and we'll get to that next week. But sometimes we forget that we do know the end. Sometimes we forget that the Lord is in control. And so in closing, I want us to remember Paul's encouragement to us in Romans 15, four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. Again, when Paul was talking, it was the Old Testament. Through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What is Paul telling us on this side of the cross? There is hope for us. Our Old Testament brothers and sisters went through a lot. And God used those experiences just like that map to point us the direction to the way home. That we must endure trusting God and clinging in his promises. Friends in Christ, we always have hope. And that's the good news of Jesus. Yes, evil exists. Yes, we've experienced it personally. Yes, we are going to experience it in the future. But we know that we have a sovereign, all holy, all good, and all knowing God who keeps his promises, who seeks our best, despite our pain and struggle. And so we must continually recalibrate and reorient our lives to that truth. That ultimately, after Habakkuk's day, we know that Jesus was born. 
that he lived a perfect and holy life, a life of active obedience and a sacrificial death that we could be made right with God. And so bottom line, why can we trust God when life doesn't make sense? Because there's revealed himself to us. He's shown himself to us and he's demonstrated that very clearly to us in Jesus. And so next week, we're going to see God's response to Habakkuk's second set of questions. And then we're going to see Habakkuk's final concluding prayer. And his prayer is actually captured um, throughout, the old, throughout the New Testament. And if you don't know it already, I'll let you in on the secret. God doesn't let the Babylonians off the hook. He does remind Habakkuk, he does sit in his holy temple. And that all the earth, including his people, should sit in silence before him. So I encourage you to read ahead, read chapters two and three, and find the answer to yourself ahead of time. But know this, when life doesn't make sense, like Habakkuk, we can trust God. He has shown himself faithful. He has shown himself good. He has shown himself all powerful. He answers our prayers. He is with us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. As we leave, we ask Lord that you would continue to work in our lives. We come here this morning, bringing so many things, so many burdens, so many concerns. Help us to trust you in faith even when it's perplexing, even when our experiences don't match with what you've revealed about yourself, help us to wait on you and know that you are good and that we are confident to see the outcome as you do all things for your glory and our good. We love you so much. Thank you for meeting with us. May we now go in your grace and your peace by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much.